traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello, I'm Simon Long, international editor at The Economist. And this is Money Talks on Economist Radio. Coming up on today's show, we look at how wages are growing for the lowest paid Americans and how at long last, pay is beginning to pick up in the UK too. Just for overall wages, if you look at people in the bottom third of the income distribution, they've really seen an acceleration. More recently, in the past kind of few quarters, few months, we've finally seen signs that this kind of long period of very poor wage growth is is coming to an end. Also, why the prices of homes for the very rich in the world's most desirable cities may have reached a turning point. First... There's heated debate in America about raising the minimum wage, the fight for 15, with Democratic presidential contenders Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren and Kamala Harris all campaigning for it. Jeff Bezos, the boss of Amazon, has challenged his competitors to match his firm's $15 minimum wage. However, it seems that the wages for the lowest paid Americans are already on the increase and are outpacing the growth for middle income earners. Samaya Keynes, our US economics editor, has been looking into the trend. Over the past year or so, it looks like wages for the very lowest earners in America have, have popped up a bit. And it turns out the data is pretty noisy and, and wage growth jumps around quite a lot. So it, it's risky reading too much into any single figure. But if you look at wage growth over the past five years, then it does look like it's been a bit faster at the bottom than in the middle. So I spoke to Ernie Tedeschi, who was formerly an economist at the US Treasury, and he's now at Evercore ISI, which is a consultancy. Just for overall wages, if you look at people in the bottom third of the income distribution, they've really seen an acceleration over the last couple of years. And I think that that's consistent with sort of if you think that economic recoveries start with people at the top and then they kind of work their way down to people at the bottom. There are basically three explanations for this wage growth at the bottom floating around. Because essentially this is a good news story, everyone wants to take the credit. Uh, So the, the Trump administration wants to say this is because of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. Although I think the phenomenon I'm describing, it started a bit before that came into effect at the end of 2017. I spoke to Martha Gimbel, who is the chief economist at Indeed.com, which is a jobs listing website, about what her diagnosis was. Since the end of 2017, the economy has been adding jobs in middle and high wage industries at a faster pace than at low wage industries have been adding. That is good news for workers. 
job opportunities are popping up faster in industries that are paying higher wages. At the same time, you've seen wage growth happening faster in low-wage industries. They're having to compete for workers, and so they're having to raise wages faster and faster. And so an economy that is adding jobs faster in middle and high-wage industries, but raising wages faster in low-wage industries is an economy that is working for workers. And that's exactly what we would expect to see in a tight labor market. Opportunities that are opening up in middle and high-wage industries and low-wage industries having to raise wages in order to compete. It is true that the labor market is very hot right now, but there's another possible driver of this earnings growth for the poorest Americans, which is increases in the minimum wage. I asked Ernie what's been going on with that. The federal minimum wage hasn't changed since 2009. To an unprecedented degree, states, and even to a greater extent, local governments have stepped up. It used to be very rare for minimum wage workers to be subject to a minimum wage that wasn't the federal minimum wage. Now 90% of the work that's done at a minimum wage is done at a minimum wage that's higher than the federal minimum wage. And in fact, 40% is done at a minimum wage that's higher than the state minimum wages. Cities and local governments have been so enthusiastic about raising minimum wages that the increases may have affected average earnings growth. So if you look overall, like at the average hourly earnings um, number that you get from the payroll report that comes out at the beginning of every month, uh, we have to remember that minimum wage work is still a very small share of all the work that's done in America. So probably about 5% of all the labor hours that are done in hourly jobs are minimum wage work. And then if you add it on salary jobs, and salary jobs are generally not bound by a minimum wage, it would be even smaller share of that. When you look at year-on-year AHE growth, probably only about you know 10 basis points, you know, one-tenth of one percent of annual growth is due to rises in the minimum wage. But then when you kind of zoom in, hone in on people on the low end who you would expect to benefit more from minimum wage increases, the benefits for just that subpopulation are much, much greater. If we take the household survey that's released every month with the jobs report and we try to replicate average hourly earnings in the household survey and then we hone in on the bottom third of workers, people making the bottom third of wages, and look at their average wage growth over time, in 2019, you know, my analysis found that probably 80 basis points, almost 1% of their wage growth in 2019 was due to rises in state and local minimum wages. That figure of 1% is, is a big number, and it's probably more of an upper bound on the contribution of these minimum wage increases to earnings growth. It really captures how much minimum wages forced earnings to grow in 2019. So it doesn't really take into account how much they might have increased anyway. Bearing that in mind, I asked Ernie whether he really thought the minimum wages were pushing up earnings. So on the one hand, I think that the most likely explanation for this acceleration is just the tight labor market. It's a boring explanation, but tight labor markets do wonders, particularly tight labor markets when you have recoveries that last a long time and they're allowed to go on. Over time, they start reaching more and more marginal workers. And I think low-wage workers are just the latest example of what a tight labor market can do. 
On the other hand, I do think that the rises in state and local minimum wages that we've seen over the last five years have put upward pressure on wage growth for low-wage workers. But now here's my third hand. They may have put upward pressure on wages for low-wage workers, but then it's still, you know, the jury is still out in the economic community on whether minimum wage hikes have no effect or decrease jobs in those areas that do them. So it may be the case that workers who were lucky enough to keep their minimum wage jobs got a hike from these cuts, while on the other hand, there were fewer minimum wage jobs created as a result of these hikes. But uh, I want to emphasize that this is still very much an intense debate in the economic community. There was a recent paper released earlier this month that looked at 138 minimum wage hikes since 1979 and found virtually no effect in most sectors as a result of them. For decades and decades, economists have been tying themselves in knots, trying to work out what exactly the impact is of minimum wages on on earnings and employment and a whole host of other things. And what's been happening recently is it's a bit of a nightmare. On the one hand, it's great. Minimum wage increases are happening everywhere. And so there's lots of experiments to analyze. But... If someone's experiencing a really hot labor market, then that's exactly the kind of place where it might seem attractive to raise the minimum wage. And then when wages do rise, it's difficult to tell how much was because of the minimum wage increase and how much would have happened anyway. So you might say that you need a hot labor market to enable the minimum wage increases, but it's precisely that hot labor market that makes it really difficult to work out the impact of those forced rises. So there are a lot of questions still to be answered, a lot of work for economists still to do. But I think we can say that the minimum wage increases that we're seeing are putting some upward pressure on wages, but not by quite enough to explain all of the wage growth at the bottom of the earnings distribution. I followed up with Ernie and he told me that between 2013 and 2018, minimum wage growth, even with his upper estimate, it could only explain up to a quarter of earnings growth for that bottom third of the income distribution. So it looks like this broader economic expansion is doing quite a lot of work too. That was Samir Keynes reporting from the US. To get a perspective on wages in the UK, I'm joined now by Callum Williams, The Economist's Britain economics correspondent. Hello, Callum. Hello. So wages in Britain have been depressed for quite a long time, right? Yes, that's right. So since the financial crisis, real wages in Britain, so wages once you adjust for inflation, have actually fallen. And this is a performance that has been seen in only a handful of other rich countries such as Greece. So Britain is well towards the bottom of international real wage tables. However, more recently, in the past kind of few quarters, few months, we've finally seen signs that this kind of long period of very poor wage growth is coming to an end. And I was hoping not to do this, but it's sort of compulsory in an interview about Britain, I suppose. I mean, how much has Brexit to do with that? Is it that European workers are leaving? I think it's probably quite a small effect. So that could be one thing. I mean, some people would disagree with this, but there is also a little bit of evidence that because it has become more difficult to source workers from abroad, some industries are investing more in 
stuff like machinery, basically, which sort of raises the productivity of their workers already there. So that could be something else. But really, the effect of Brexit thus far on the economy has been fairly limited. But you mentioned there are some good signs on productivity, which has yes. been one of the biggest worries about the British economy for as long as I can remember. Yes, absolutely. So there's a member of the Monetary Policy Committee who, in a recent speech, argued that productivity has been kind of on a gentle upward trend now for a few years and also kind of raised this tantalising question of whether the official statisticians are doing a good enough job of actually tracking those those increases. So her argument is that Actually, when we look back at the figures in, say, five years' time, when we've had you know, a chance to revise them and so on, we'll, we'll see that actually productivity growth was slightly better than we think it is at the moment. And is this uptick here mirroring one across the rest of the EU than the rest of the OECD? To an extent. So economists have this kind of term, which they refer to as the, as the Phillips curve, which is this idea that when you have low unemployment, you tend to get higher growth in, in wages. Now, in almost every country we've seen that Phillips curve apparently break down to an extent. So in other words, whereas in the past, low unemployment would have led to high increases in wages per year. Now what happens is you do you do see wage increases, but they're a lot lower than they used to be. So we did an article a while ago, which sort of suggested, roughly speaking, that when Britain had low unemployment, as low as it has now, so 4% unemployment, if Britain had that in the sort of 1970s, then you'd expect nominal wages to be rising by 8 10%. And that was also true even in, in the 2000s, that was also true. So the Phillips curve has broken down across the, the OECD. But I think what is also true is that along with, say, Japan, it appears to have broken down most in Britain. But has now kicked in again. Are we seeing a, a lasting turnaround? Well, that, yeah, that's the question, I guess. I think it's probably the safest assumption is that lasting turnaround might be slightly kind of optimistic, unfortunately. What the Bank of England kind of thinks is happening is that unemployment's got so low and employment's got so high, the labour market's got so tight that employers are having to compete hard to, to find these workers. And what that actually could mean is that wage costs across the economy are actually basically rising too quickly for employers to sustain because their productivity growth is still rather low. So they're not really able to afford those pay rises. And so what we're seeing is that some firms, say, are having to make do with lower profit margins, which some people may say, you know, no bad thing. Others are having to raise prices. So what that means is that kind of ends up feeding into overall inflation in the economy, which, which hurts everybody. So rough rule of thumb, it seems to me that at about 3 to 4% nominal wage growth, which is low by historical standards, that's about what the UK economy can sustain before inflation is probably going to move above target. So that's, as I say, that's pretty low. On that rate of increase, the UK isn't going to see a return to its pre-crisis peak of wages, which was reached in about 2007, until 2022. So that's sort of 15 years of basically zero wage growth, which is kind of a depressing story. It is indeed. Kenneth, thank you very much. Thank you. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. 
Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Finally, to the other end of the scale, prime properties. In five of the world's most desirable cities, Hong Kong, London, New York, Sydney and Vancouver, home prices climbed steadily for several years after 2009. As prices of homes in the most desirable locations have gone through the roof, data compiled by The Economist suggests this trend could be coming to an end. I'm Caroline Carter in Hong Kong for The Economist. I'm on the island of Apli Chow in the south of Hong Kong, surrounded by high-rise blocks of apartments overlooking the Lama Channel and out towards the South China Sea. Properties in Hong Kong have been out of the reach of most ordinary people for a long time. With some calculations, it would take a regular family 21 years to save up to buy their own home. Yet despite sky-high prices, demand in Hong Kong is normally very robust. Locals who can afford to love buying property, as do mainland investors who consider the city a safe and convenient way to get their money out of China. Last year, though, proved that even Hong Kong property is not always a sure thing. Prices started dropping in August and have fallen 9% since then. I'm Rosemary Ward, the Economist New York correspondent, and I'm standing in the shadow of one of the luxury high-rises on Manhattan's 57th Street near Central Park, which has become known as Billionaire's Row. New York's luxury housing market has been in decline for more than two years. Transaction volume is well down, apartments are on the market for much longer, and sale discounts of 12 to 15% on properties worth 20 million and higher are the norm. I'm Robert Milliken, a correspondent for The Economist in Sydney, and I'm standing here in the residential district of Darling Point, right by Sydney Harbour. Up to a couple of years ago, Sydney had one of the most remarkable housing price booms in Australia's history, especially in upmarket areas like Darling Point. In the five years to 2017, housing prices soared by about 75%. Since their peak that year, they've been falling. Prices have dropped about 13%, even more at the prime end of the market. I'm Petty Fong, The Economist Vancouver correspondent, and I'm standing here at an open house for a Yale Town condo, where buyers, local ones, are seeing lower prices than they've seen in years. Prices, especially in downtown condos and the luxury single-family homes, rose dramatically over the last few years, and they're falling now, rapidly. Over the past several years, New York saw luxury development on an unprecedented scale. Skinny luxury towers like the one above me have changed the city skyline while causing a glut in inventory in New York's luxury market. Second, a lot of buyers are just waiting for the market to bottom. Third, many are turned off by the recent changes in tax law, including a new provision capping state and local property tax deductions. A few things have happened to send housing prices falling. A building boom in Sydney has increased the housing supply, meaning less competition for a limited pool. Banks have tightened their lending practices in the wake of a public inquiry last year, which shone unflattering light on Australia's big banks. Now, Vancouver is a little different than the other cities mentioned. It's not a financial capital like Hong Kong or Manhattan or London, or even like Sydney, which is the biggest city in its country. Vancouver is the smallest population-wise of those cities, and the household median income in Vancouver is low compared to other cities in Canada. Vancouver's luxury real estate market has been for years the story of an influx of money coming into the city. As realtor Ian Watt, who specializes in luxury condos, told me recently, 
Prices went up because Chinese money and speculation was coming in. It wasn't like Vancouver was generating new industries with high-paying jobs and people here were getting rich and spending their money on real estate. These days, especially in the high-end luxury market, buyers have been forced to sell anywhere from 25 to 35% below the assessed value. That's the new reality in Vancouver. Joining me now to discuss the rise and possible fall of premium house prices is James Fransham, one of our data journalists who helped compile the figures for The Economist. Hello, James. Hello. So firstly, could you give us some context? I mean, how big and how coordinated had the rise in property prices in these prestige cities been? Okay, so we're talking about big preeminent cities, global cities, so New York, London, Vancouver, Hong Kong. And basically, prices have doubled since the financial crisis, since 2009. In all of them? So that's on average. There is a range. So Hong Kong prices have basically risen threefold. New York, Manhattan specifically, the rise has been more like 25, 30%. London, they've doubled. So it's across the range, but basically the the trend has been all in the same direction. So they all rose together and now they all in decline? They're basically starting to fall or declining in these places. So tying a thread between these five cities, Hong Kong started falling in uh, mid last year. It's now down about 9%. Sydney is down 10, 11%. Similarly in Vancouver. London, in prime central London, we call kind of the the top 10% of the market in in central London, it's down about 20%. So I thought at this end of the market, in London, for example, you're talking about in particular, rich foreigners coming in and spending cash. Interest rates shouldn't affect that very much. Sure. Yeah, they are cash buyers. Yeah, they're cash rich by their nature. Millionaires do have lots of money. But they are distracted by the yield available on other assets too. And the gross yield on residential investment is falling. And they're thinking, well, I can put it elsewhere and do something else with my money. Okay, cost of money. What other factors? So there's the, there's the wealth creation is, a, is another element too. So the world has created millions of millionaires over the past eight years or so. That rate is slowing now. And place of wealth creation, China, getting harder and harder to get your money out of the country. And so Chinese investment is falling in, in a number of cities, particularly in Sydney, where it's fallen about 40% over the past year. If the initial boom and then the decline has been coordinated. Would we expect the same of any new recovery, any new surge in property prices around these cities? The IMF thinks that that increasingly these cities are moving together, they're increasingly synchronised, and that uh, the correlation increases uh, at times of global unrest. It may foreshadow a downturn, but they also are expected to rise again when the market picks up. So this particular aspect of globalisation, if you like, is, is holding strong? Indeed, yes. Yeah. I mean, Global house prices is acting more and more like a a global asset class. So its movements are similar to that of the bond market or the stock market. James, thank you very much. Pleasure. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts. And if you like our journalism, please pick up a copy of The Economist. Or you can subscribe at economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for £12 or $12. I'm Simon Long in London. This is The Economist.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.